So turn with me, however you have a copy of God's word this morning, to Titus chapter 2. We're going to look at the first 10 verses. I'm going to read it all so that we can get a good overview of the scripture we're going to be walking through this morning. Titus chapter 2 verse 1 says this, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you'd give us clarity this morning as we walk through your word. We pray that you'd give us charity and grace this morning to understand your word and speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been talking in the book of Titus about two things, words and works, beliefs and behaviors. Now, Paul, writing to Titus, uses this phrase in chapter one, sound doctrine. And we talked a little bit last week about how sound means healthy, healthy gospel doctrine. But doctrine's not just what you say. It's not just what's on paper. It's not just what you believe. It's also how you behave. It's your works. It's what you do. And so here we are in Titus chapter two, and Paul says for Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, I have just grown up reading the ESV and the word accord or according to just works for me. I understand what they're trying to say. But in case you don't, here's a little picture. Teach what fits with sound doctrine. I mean, can you imagine a, a puzzle or gears fitting together? Teach what is suitable with sound doctrine. Teach things that line up with sound doctrine. He's, he's working now in chapter two to apply sound doctrine to our lives. Teach those things that are fitting and suitable. And here, here's what we're gonna see today. Our lives can make the gospel more believable or more unbelievable for people. Your life the way that you live, the way that we live together, because this passage is not just talking about individuals, it is relational through and through. Our life together, when the watching world looks at us, our life together can make the gospel more believable. They could look at our lives and say, surely Jesus is the son of God. Or our life can have the opposite effect. People could look at our lives individually and together and say, they don't walk anything like the God they say they serve. What is it that accords or fits or is suit? What's the life that fits with the gospel we proclaim? 
What does it look like to walk the talk? The things in this passage are by no means exhaustive. Anytime you find in the New Testament, especially the letters, a list, you can be sure that that's not everything. But you can also be sure that it, it definitely, at a minimum, includes some of these things. So I don't want you to think this is all that what it means to live a life in accordance with the gospel, but it's certainly not less than these things. And so today's message is going to be about a beautiful gospel life. And that word beautiful comes from verse 10 where it uses the word adorn. It's where we get our word cosmetic, cosmeto. Cosmetic, I mean, think about makeup and making something look better, look more beautiful. What does a beautiful gospel life look like? Well, the first point we'll see this morning is we'll see gospel living that comes with age. Gospel living that comes with age. Look at verse two and three with me. Older men, so he's talking about age, Older men are to be sober-minded and dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So we're going to walk through some of these age groups that Paul writes to Titus about, and we're going to see what we can pull out of these. And the first one, we'll talk about the older, gospel living that comes with age. Older men are first to be sober-minded. I mean, think about being sensible, being a clear thinker. I wrote this, embracing reality. What's the opposite of someone who's sober-minded? Someone who doesn't see things as they really are, right? Someone who doesn't walk in step with what reality really is. But older men, you, you ought to be sober-minded. Why? You, you've been around the sun a time or two. You ought to know by this point in your life how things really work. It says older men ought to be dignified. And here's the, the money quote that I pulled studying for this. Dignified means that which lifts the mind from what's cheap to that which is noble and good. That's what it means to be dignified. That when people look at older men, they ought not to see cheap wasting your life away, but they ought to be uh, seeing you and thinking of what's noble and what's good and of moral worth. Then we see the word self-controlled. Now this is going to show up all over the passage explicitly it says older men and younger women and younger men. In fact, us younger men, we have one job. It only gives us one thing, be self-controlled. That's it. Paul's like, and if you can get him to do that, then God bless. But by virtue of him telling older women to train the younger women to be self-controlled, we can assume the older women also ought to be self-controlled. Well, what in the world does self-controlled mean? Well, I think about Titus Chapter three, we'll see it in the next chapter, verse three, it says, we ourselves were once, talking about life before Jesus, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. We can be self-controlled or we can be enslaved to various passions and pleasures. What's the opposite of self-control? I would probably say uh, our current culture is the opposite, self-expression. I, I don't need to control myself. I need to set myself free. Whatever's in here is the truth and it ought to come out. But Paul is saying an older man ought to be self-controlled, not enslaved to passions or pleasures, not enslaved to self-expression. And then last, he says, sound and faith and love and steadfastness or, or endurance, if the word endurance helps you more there. I was listening to a, a sermon on this by a guy who's between my age and much older men. He, he might be more middle-aged, and he said, he read this and he said, 
don't quit. Get, be an anchor for us and show us that there's hope to follow Jesus in the later years of your life. I mean, older men, be sound in the faith. Show me a faith that's been seized. Show me a man that the gospel has been steeping in his heart for decades. That you're sound in the faith. You're still loving people and you're enduring until the end. Not a grumpy old hag yelling, get off my lawn, wishing he was on the golf course or on the fishing boat but a man who's loving, right? I mean, don't we have in our culture a mindset of when you retire, you don't just retire from income, but sometimes you can retire from character. Like, I don't have to keep being the nice and love. No, no, guess what? I've, I've paid my dues in this world. I'm kicking my feet up until I get out. But Paul's saying, older men, no, no, no. Stay healthy, in these things that matter. And then he turns to older women and he says, older women in verse three, likewise are, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and so train the young women. So the first thing he says, reverent in behavior. This word reverent is the only time in the entire Bible this specific Greek word is used. And it's kind of weird because Paul actually took it from a more secular language of Greek that they used it in secular Greek religion. And it's used to describe like a priest or a priestess in secular temples. Say, so why in the world is, is Paul using that word here? Well, he's probably talking to people that have a secular background, but here's what he's trying to say. You ought to live like a priestess because he's talking to women. What does a priestess do? Well, a, a priest goes into the temple, spends time in the presence of God. So older women, you ought to live like people who are in God's presence. I mean, I'm thinking of Moses coming down from the mountain of God and his face is shining. Older women, you ought to walk around like God's royal queens of the kingdom, showing us what it means to know God. Then it gives us two negatives, not slanderers. So not just walking around gossiping and accusing people or speaking maliciously against people. Also not slaves to much wine. This would have been a very cultural uh, moment in the first century that you'd party and as you got older for ladies, you'd probably be living with family. You, your kids would probably be grown. You wouldn't have the responsibility you once had so you could kind of kick back a little more. And it would lead to drunkenness and parties and he's saying, rather than speaking slanderous words or being a slave to much wine, teach what is good. So rather than bad words coming out of your mouth, slanderous, malicious words coming out of your mouth, let your speech be good. And not only good, but intentional. Isn't that what the word teach implies for us? Not like accidental. When you teach, you're teaching something on purpose. Older women, you have a discipleship calling from God in our church to train specifically in Titus 2. Now, remember, this is not exhaustive. This is not the only place you teach or the only place you train, but in Titus 2, he's saying train younger women. Train younger women. And so I, I think when we see older men and older women here in Titus, we see gospel living that comes with age. Now, isn't it obvious when you see someone that's not living according to their age? Maybe you think of young kids, but I actually think of people who are a little older. 
Maybe you see a guy that seems like he never moved out of the frat house, right? Someone that never learned how to be more disciplined with their life. Someone that it seems like they should have things together a little more. Or maybe you see an empty nester who finishes a bottle of wine much faster than they did earlier in their life, giving themselves to the drunkenness that is mentioned here in Titus 2. Now, regardless, though, it's, it always seems like when you see people that aren't living according to their age, it's always people that should have already discovered those things are empty. When you let the gospel steep like a tea bag in hot water in your heart for years and decades, you begin to learn two things. One, Jesus is worth living for and nothing else. And two, Jesus is enough. I hope as you set your eyes on Jesus for decades upon decades, you can bear testimony to younger folks. Now, I've gone down that path and say with Augustine, look, until I found rest in God, my heart was restless. I would jump here and jump there, but I've learned I don't have to jump to all these things anymore and find my identity in all these places. No, no, I can be reverent in my behavior and walk like someone who's content, like a priestess in the presence of God. Now, I can walk dignified. When you look at me, you don't have to see cheap stuff. You can see what's truly valuable, God. Gospel living that comes with age is gospel living that is satisfied with who God is. But then the second point we see is gospel living for the right age. Gospel living for the right age. What if you don't have age under your belt yet? What kind of gospel implications are there for you right now? Whether maybe the gospel's just been steeping in your heart for even a few months or a few years. Well, first he talks about younger women. But the first thing he says is he's talking to the older women. He's saying, older women, you trained the younger women. Don't you long for mentoring relationships? Yes, in this context, ladies, but all of us. Don't you long for intergenerate? I mean, don't you wish somebody who has been where you are could sit down with you regularly and show you the path that you're getting ready to walk? I mean, aren't there times you look back and you go, boy, I wish I had a mentor that went through that. I, it could have saved me a lot of heartache. I, there are times I wish that, and, and to be honest with you, that's the primary thing that called me to Shalford was a mentoring relationship with Al that we knew we needed. We needed someone who was far ahead of us in life to pour into Carrie and I, and that's exactly what Al and KK have been to us these last five years. We need people who have been through what we're going through to train us and pour into us and disciple us. But here are some of the things that Paul writes about how older women are to train younger women. There's two sets of things in this list. First, we see some characteristics, and they're things you might expect of all believers. Self-controlled, pure, kind. And so there's self-control showing up again. But then there's another set of things that's in this list that relates specifically to families, which ought not to surprise us, because in chapter 1, he said the false teaching was upsetting entire families. So it would make sense that if in chapter two, he picks up on the theme of family again. And here's what he says. So train the young women to love their husbands and children. And that's the first thing. He says, train them to love your family. Now, could we argue with that? No. Of course not. Of course we know we ought to love our families. Now, let me 
take just a second to say, Paul is not saying that he expects every young woman to be married. That's not an expectation. That, that's not a further step towards holiness if you are married and a step backwards if you're not. That's an argument from silence in the text. And if anyone tries to tell you that God's more honored by you being married than being single, they are flat out wrong. That is, not a, that is not at all what this text is saying. But instead, he is writing to young women who were married, and in the first century, that just so happened to be the vast majority of younger women. But for those who are married, here's how you ought to be towards your family, is what Paul's saying. You ought to be loving. And, and here's, how the gospel, here's how loving your family is shaped by the gospel and is a testimony to the gospel. How you make the gospel more believable? Because the gospel frees us to be committed and faithful and loving to the same folks over a long period of time, even a husband and children. What, what else could testify to that faithfulness? Then to point and say, hey, the only reason we've had a, a faithful marriage is because I know God's faithful to me. It's not because he's perfect or I'm perfect, but it's God's faithfulness that's kept us together. Or maybe in your case, if you're not married, loving God himself and being content with no husband or children can have the same effect to outsiders looking in on your life, that you are content with God. Both callings, married or not, are full of dignity and value. Both callings also have their own challenges. And both callings, married or single, model a contentment in God and the things that he brings us. This is how self-control applies even to loving your husband and children. We talked a few weeks ago about 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock among you. Maybe we could say love the family among you. Don't love the husband you wish you had. Don't love the children you wish you had. I mean, how often, if you have young kids like us, do people tell you, it goes by fast. Don't miss it. And we go home and I'm like, I could miss this. Like, I'm okay. I'm okay, I'm okay to not buy pull-ups again or diapers, right? And I wish for the kids I don't have yet. And I resent the kids at times that I do have because of the challenges that are right here. But what he's saying and what, and look, it takes age for someone to speak this into your life who's been through it and is gone and their kids are moved out for them to look at you and go, I'm, I know this is hard right now, but I need you with everything you've got to enjoy and love this family at this age, at this house that's too small and too messy. I need you to love them. It takes commitment and self-control, and that is challenging. But second, if we see love your family, the other family aspect of these things he speaks to younger women is working at home. Now, that might not be the best translation. One commentator I read said maybe good managers of the home is a better translation. Uh, another lady I was reading who wrote a wonderful book, I'll quote in just a minute, pulled in Genesis 1 language and have dominion over the home. But you know what's interesting? Even though this is written to younger women, this is very similar to what Paul tells elders to do, right? 1 Timothy 3, manage your own household well. Or even in Titus chapter one where he talks about the family and the husband and the children. So this text cannot mean that women don't work outside the home. Again, that's the same, if you're gonna make that argument, that's, that's just like making an argument that every young woman ought to be married. That's not the point of the text. 
The point of the text is not to say you have to only work at home, but it's to say there are certain responsibilities that come within the home. What in the world? So it doesn't mean you don't work outside the home, but also doesn't mean that women aren't, for instance, in ministry. Look in the New Testament at Lydia in Acts 16, Iodia and Syntyche in Philippians chapter 4, Phoebe in Romans 16, just to name a few. The famous or infamous Proverbs 31 woman is in the marketplace, is a business owner. So that's not what this is saying, that you have to and must only work in the home. In fact, I think we've misunderstood what work is and I'd like to quote an author, Hannah Anderson wrote a phenomenal book called Made for More in which she talks about being made in God's image and applies it specifically to women. Here's what she says. When we define work in terms of salary and position instead of in terms of gifting and service, we communicate that anyone who's not drawing a salary or working in the marketplace is somehow less human. And we end up elevating those who work in professional positions above those who work in more mundane callings. Now she goes on. We continue to define a woman's work by where she works instead of in whose image she works. When God makes us in his image, he commissioned both men and women to rule over creation together. And not only are we to rule together, but the very things that embody this rule, reproducing and stewarding the creation must be accomplished in dependence on each other. In Genesis 1, God said, be fruitful and multiply. That takes two. So these are not two distinct commands, but one command that exists with this internal tension and intrinsic interconnectedness. In other words, God did not create the marketplace and the home to be in competition with each other, but to depend on each other. And when we insist on pitting them against each other, we often end up failing at both. As women, we must recognize that Imago Day work is larger than either that of the home or the marketplace, but it both encompasses and transcends them. As image bearers, we rule over both. We don't enslave ourselves to the cultural expectations of domestic life, but we rule over domestic life, using it to cultivate a place where every member can flourish. Neither are we slaves to the marketplace, just conforming our mechanistic structures of input and output, work and get paid. Instead, we exercise our personal gifting, as Peter says, to serve one another's. We use our gifting to serve our families and those around us well. Here's the point. It's not where you work, but it's how you work. Do you work as those that serve? Now, the way you serve your family may be to go get a job maybe to be a teacher, maybe to be a CEO, maybe to be all kinds of things. But the point is how you are working and who you're serving when you work. You know, the family is God's plan A. The only reason there's other social structures is because families got too big and there were too many people on planet Earth for them to be just one family. But the family is God's plan A. So when he says here, working at home, that doesn't handcuff you to a house, but instead that reprioritizes why you do what you do, ladies and men. You know, most of the time when you see something gender specific in scripture, you can go find another place where it's applied to the other gender, you know? And I think that's the same thing what happens here. Does this mean men ought not to work in the home? Absolutely not. 
That's not what that means. Men ought to be servants in the home as well. And here's the third thing that he says specifically to young women about families. Submissive to their own husbands. Now, this word submissive has been misused, abused, and misunderstood. So we're gonna take just a minute to talk about what it is and what it's not. Submission is not about inferiority. See, both men and women are of equal value and worth and dignity and calling before God. Both male and female were created in God's image. In fact, males were incomplete without females, Genesis 2. The first thing God says is not good is that man be alone. He needed a helper. Now, helper doesn't mean assistant, sidekick. That word is used in the Old Testament the majority of times to describe God himself. So submission is not about one being better or over the other. The Bible never speaks that all women should submit to all men because the Bible doesn't view one gender as inferior to the other. So submission is not about inferiority. Submission is also not about servitude. It's not that one gender is the boss of another. Uh-uh, that's not how the Bible works when it comes to relationships like that. Sometimes we think from scripture, some people will be too hard gripped and say, well, it's submission. So the husband ought to be the boss and make the decisions and wear the pants. But then I think practically the way it works out uh, is husbands often joke and say, let me ask the boss. But one gender is not the boss while the other is the servant. Third, submission is not absolute. You should never submit to any forms of abuse whether it's physical, sexual, verbal, spiritual, or emotional. You should not submit to perform any sort of sinful action. In fact, Kathy Keller, Tim Keller's wife, has written some wonderful things on this. She wrote the chapter in their book, Meaning of Marriage, on gender roles. She says, if you actually submit by being a helper, then there's actually times that you're gonna help your husband by not submitting to, show, to help him see that he's not walking in step with God. Submission's not absolute. It's not obedience. Fourth, submission is only in the context of marriage. This kind of submission is only in the context of marriage. Do you notice the wording? Submissive to their own husbands. This is about wives and husbands. Outside of marriage, every believer is called to all kinds of submission. First and foremost, to God. Also to rulers and authorities in government. Every believer ought to submit to elders. And then also, if you say every believer ought to submit to elders, what do you do with the elders who are also believers? Well, that's why we at Shalford believe in a plurality of leadership and not a solo pastor model. You don't want me leading the church by myself, I promise. You don't want Al leading the church by himself, I promise. Part of that reason is because I'm a believer and I need to submit to somebody. Who am I gonna submit to? Uh, other elders, that's why we have a plurality, we're gonna have a plurality of elders. Ephesians 5.21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and coincidentally, that verse transitions directly into the famous Ephesians 5 passage on marriage. So all believers ought to submit, and this kind of submission is, is only in the context of marriage. Number five, submission is 
only one of many parts in the marriage relationship. It's not fair to characterize an entire marriage just in terms of who submits and who leads. That, no, no, no. That's not how scripture defines marriage. There's so much more to marriage than that. Listen to Wendy Alsop, who wrote a book called, Is the Bible Good for Women? She says this, the only thing that makes marital submission work is that it exists in an established covenant where there are clear expectations and responsibilities for both parties. For both parties. In both contexts, submission is bound by a covenant. So if you were at growth group this morning, we started our growth groups, and Lynn did a fantastic job of leading it. We talked about relationships. We talked about expectations. Do you know in relationships, there are roles, there are expectations for who's going to fulfill what role and do what. Then there are responsibilities, and there's authority. Submission is only one aspect of marriage. And that leads us to point number six. Biblical submission exists in relationship to the kind of husband that's pictured in Ephesians 5. And to me, th this is what makes it so beautiful. You say, what, what is submission really about? Well, if you're going to ask about submission, let's ask about authority. S submitting to who? Your husband. Well, what do we know in Scripture about the husband? Let's look at Ephesians 5. Dr. Aiken summarized it like this. Husbands ought to love their wives in a way that's sacrificial and sanctifying and sensitive and satisfying and specific. Here's what Ephesians 5 says. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Sacrifice for your wives just as Christ sacrificed himself. Live for your wives' sanctification for her growth in Christ because that's just what Jesus did for us. Love your wife selflessly like she's your own body. Authority in scripture is never autocratic or absolute. It's never mean or demanding or domineering. Good authority in scripture is always actually subversive because it's servant-hearted. It's humble. It's gentle. It's team-building and gracious and forgiving and listening. That is true in marriage and it's true in the church. That's true authority. So when we talk about submission, and you read, uh, you read submissive to their own husbands, and when you hear husband, you ought to think of someone who's always gonna ask you questions, someone who's gonna listen to you, someone who's gonna care for you. Not someone who walks out and just tells you how it's gonna be and says, no, 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 no. N don't talk back. This is how it's gonna be, and, and you're either gonna get on board and submit or, or you're not. No, that's, that's not the kind of authority that the Bible pictures in healthy marriage. That's not the kind of authority that anyone, any women are called to submit to. But actually, I think if you keep going asking about biblical submission, we see that the marriage relationship, number seven, is one of mutual submission. Because of Ephesians 5.21, it says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then 1 Corinthians 7 actually says Husbands, your bodies don't belong to you. They belong to your wife. Wives, your bodies don't belong to you. They belong to your husband. That's the one flesh nature of marriage. So we see in this kind of marriage where husbands lead in this kind of humble and gentle way. You say, well, what does it mean to lead? To be honest, I think the Bible is so clear on how the husbands lead that for me, it actually gets challenging to say, how? Because when you picture a husband so servant-hearted 
ears so wide open, knees so scraped because he's always on them serving and helping. When you picture this kind of husband who's so gentle and gracious, so self-sacrificial, so for his wife's good, it ought to confuse our culture when they look at our marriages because they should say, well, the Bible says wives should submit. Why don't I see husbands walking around with some big stripe on their chest? Why don't you look more like the radical Muslim extremists where wives follow so far behind? And we say, oh, you've misunderstood what leadership means in the scriptures. Uh, Yeah, I'm called to lead, but I'm called to lead from my knees. I'm called to lead from a place of weakness. I'm called to lead from a place of also submitting to her, always considering what does she need? What's best for her sanctification? Not asking how can she sacrifice for me, but asking how can I sacrifice for her. The beauty in marriage is that both, it takes both male and female to bear the image of God, Genesis 1. And in marriage, we see that flesh out. Both husbands and wives bear the image of Christ. We both, it takes both to point to Jesus. Say how? Well, Philippians 2, one of my favorite passages we see the humility of Christ to lay down his glory and his equality with God. So in the Trinity, the Father's not like in charge of the Son. They are one. They are one essence. They have the same mind, the same will, the same desire. They're different persons. They're equal. But Jesus didn't count that as something to be grasped. Instead, he laid it aside so that he could come and humble himself through obedience to the point of death on a cross so that God could highly exalt him. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's Philippians 2. Wives, you get the opportunity to bear the image of Christ to the world by being equal to your husband, yet laying down glory in order to serve. Husbands, you get to bear the image of Christ by serving your wife through sacrifice. That's Ephesians 5. Using whatever authority you have to actually die. Die to yourself. Die for her good. So I hope this word submission doesn't scare us. Like it scared me in the past and I've thought, I I don't, what am I gonna say? I don't wanna make anyone feel less than or underneath or trampled down or, but I think when you look at the whole Bible picture and you see this one little phrase, submissive to their own husbands, in that phrase we see an entire world of the gospel opened up and we see a mutually submissive relationship in which both husbands and wife are constantly deferring to each other. Marriage ultimately is a picture of the gospel. It really ought to be confusing to a watching world to see our marriages. Because some people may wonder, why doesn't the husband just put his foot down and wear the pants and tell his wife to quiet down and lead the family? But on the other hand, you're going to see some people wonder why the wife doesn't overthrow the patriarchy. Why Why does she honor her husband at all? Why does she shackle herself to someone who's just been so oppressive all these centuries? And so both sides, left and right, ought to look at marriages and be confused by the way husbands who, wait, I thought you were supposed to be in charge. No, I, I, I just, I'm, ser- I'm serving here. Because that's what Christ did. He leads by serving. And then 
wives ought to do the same. There ought to be, I think, a little bit of confusion in a healthy marriage about who's really in charge. Because if a husband's doing the right job leading by serving, you're never really gonna see him stand up and beat his chest, point to his own authority. Didn't Jesus do that? He constantly pointed to the Father, constantly pointed to what God was doing. My my Father's working, my Father's working, my Father is working. So I know that we went on a huge tangent talking about wives submit to your husbands, be submissive to their own husbands, but I felt like it was worth it. I didn't want anyone to walk away confused about what this text was actually saying. And alas, we get to a simple-minded younger men. Be self-controlled. Isn't that what we need to hear, though? Not self-expression, self-control. Not pursuing every raise. Well, that's countercultural. I mean, if somebody offers me a, a raise or a higher-paying job, I ought not to take it. M- maybe not. Not pursuing every gadget and toy not pursuing every free time to fulfill a hobby. Goodness, let's, let's control ourselves and bring ourselves into a place where we don't have to constantly express what's in our heart, but we can control ourselves to give ourselves to God. So that's gospel living for the right age. Older men and older women pouring into younger men and younger women. And then last, we see gospel living through the ages. We see some instructions for Titus here and John Onwucheko, a pastor in uh, the West End of Atlanta, I quoted last week, says that what, what Paul's doing for Titus here is he's telling Titus to live in such a way that he takes away ammo for people who want to take shots at the church. Live above reproach in a way that, uh, see what he says in verse 8, that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. But then here in verses 9 and 10, we also see instructions for slaves. So not only do we get to talk about a confusing text that talks about submission, which is really hard, and we could spend a series fleshing that out, we also this morning get to talk about slavery. Now, I got to start off by saying this. Not the same slavery. This was written thousands of years before what happened in our country. Our country took the word slavery and and did something much more horrific than what the first century knew. Now, that's not to say everything in the first century was really healthy slaves, but I want to point out just a couple things. This is not the chattel slavery in the U.S. The slavery in the first century was not race-based. Slavery in the first century was not kidnapping. There are other ways that you could come into some bond-servant-slavery relationships. It could be to pay off debt. Slaves had all kinds of jobs in the first century that today we would consider to be very respectable professions, sometimes managing entire households, which in the first century, your household was your business. Slaves could earn their money and buy freedom, so there was a way out. And if Christian brothers and sisters had actually lived faithfully and actually read the end of Ephesians chapter 6 and not cut that out of the slave Bible, bondservants obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. You know, in five, four, three, 200 years ago, uh, verses like this were used to keep people enslaved. And they didn't read the whole text that went on to say in verse nine, masters do the same to them and stop your threatening. 
So when we think of slavery, we think of something horrific. But if Christian brothers and sisters had lived faithfully, there would have been no room for passages like Titus 2 or Ephesians 6 to be misapplied. There would have been no room for race-based, dehumanizing, transatlantic slave trade. If all the brothers and sisters three, four, five hundred years ago would have lived faithfully with the whole text of God's word because we would have read Genesis 1 and looked at every human being and seen a Mago Dei image of God. But that's not what happened. If everybody was walking in the spirit, they would have arrived on the shores of Africa and thought like missionaries instead of capitalists. They would have thought about the worth of souls instead of the worth of crops. That's not what happened. So verses like this got twisted and people would apply this to slaves and say, look, the Bible says you want to honor God, right? Then you've got to obey me. I'm your master. You ought to be pleasing to me, whatever I say. That's not what happened and that's horrific and sad and it caused generations of brokenness. So if Christian brothers and sisters had lived faithfully, there, there would have been none of that because they wouldn't have been able to misapply the text. So what does the text actually say? It says that first century slaves or bond servants had an opportunity to make the gospel look beautiful. How? Well, first, the gospel is not an excuse for laziness. They didn't have to steal little things. They didn't have to sit back and not work hard. Uh, but we also see, number two, the gospel doesn't give us a license to rebel against any and all authority. Have you met people like that? I've seen it over the last 18 months of COVID. People want to take the lordship of Christ and say that they don't have to obey any. I mean, there are still, look, we've never required masks at Shalford. I hope you feel free to wear a mask any and every week you want to. Hope you feel free to talk to me about that if you want to. You'll also never hear me say that a mask requirement or mandate is like anti-Bible and anti-God. When we have brothers and sisters meeting underground because in other countries they'll be killed if they follow Jesus. And you're telling me wearing a mask is persecution? Get out. Go <laughs> The gospel does not give us license to rebel against any and all authority. We shouldn't be looking for every opportunity that we can buck against whoever's in authority over us. But actually what we see here in verses nine and 10, try to be pleasing to your masters. Try to do this in a way that you honor the person you're working for. Not argumentative, not pilfering, stealing little things showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We can work in such a way that actually pleases those we're working for and it makes the gospel more believable. We ought not to believe the gospel in such a way that we think it gives us a license to rebel against any and every authority. But the gospel actually becomes our motivation to work. We work as if we're working for the Lord. We let our hard work be seen as a service to the ones we're working for, and we let our hard work be a witness to the gospel. So as we walk through this hard at times passage with a, a lot of lists, 
a lot of encouragements and commands that we even said at the beginning is not exhaustive. I hope we walk away thinking, is my life making the gospel more believable? Am I willing to follow God's word into what he says is true human flourishing so that as people look at me, they're drawn to my savior. And I had the opportunity to be one of, uh, my cousin and I got to preach my grandfather's funeral, uh, I guess a few months ago now. And I know that we have family members that were not, are not fully on board with the gospel. I said, how can I share the gospel in a way where I don't like look the whole time at, I don't know if you know Al's trick, but he, he always says, if I'm talking about you, I will never look at you. So you're actually safe if he's looking at you. <laughs> if he's not looking at you, Jay, he's talking to you. Or Scott, he's talking to you if he's looking over here, okay? So I'm thinking, how can I preach the gospel? I have family here that I know don't believe the gospel. What, what can I say? And I, and I realized, I thought on my Paul's life, I thought, if you loved Paul, you loved his savior because he was only the man that he was because of his savior. So if you're an unbeliever and you're here today and you love Paul Paul, it's because you love who God made him to be. I pray that you live lovable lives, that as people in your world love you, they love having you work for them, they love working for you, they love being in relationship with you, they love your mentorship, that you'd be able to say, look, it's not me, the only reason you love me is because of what God has made me to be. And it would pique their interest in this Jesus you speak of. That's the call for Titus 2. Live in such a way that adorns the gospel. Let your marriages be lived in a way that makes the gospel look beautiful. You're going to have a domineering, bullish husband. You're telling everybody who watches you that that's how God is. That's what you're telling them. You're not gonna work hard. You're not gonna submit to any sort of authority over you and you're gonna take every opportunity to buck authority to do just that. You're telling me that's exactly how God is. You're gonna repost all that stuff on Facebook that you're not even sure is true. No source. You're telling everybody the God of all truth is like that. Be careful. Because as a believer, when you repost things on Facebook and you say, I follow the way, the truth, and the life, and then your next post is some conspiracy theory, you're gonna make people second guess the first post about the way, the truth, and the life. Know that. And be, I'm not telling you not to believe it. But I'm telling you to be careful because your life will make the gospel more believable or more unbelievable. Today, I'd like for us to pray as we go and we're sent in just a minute, that God would make our lives reflections of Jesus. So would you pray with me? God, I've talked about all the things a pastor should not talk about. Submission, slavery, and politics in social media. So I just need your grace, God. I do, I just need your grace. We need your grace. Because these aren't easy things. They're not simple things. 
God, I'm, I'm reminded of Abraham Kuyper over 100 years ago said there's no square inch of this entire world that you don't declare mine. And so all of these corners and crevices of our heart and this world, you want total authority over. I pray we'd willingly give it to you. And I pray that our lives would make the gospel more believable for those who see us.